Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name's Sam Lebowitz, joined as always by the lovely Jack Hendon. Jack, a solid 4-0 result for the Mets to take a series from the Nationals today to kick off episode 34 of the podcast. How are you feeling on this April the 25th? A lot better than yesterday. It was pretty good stuff. How about you? I am I am feeling the same as you, my friend. Yesterday kind of sucked in terms of Mets stuff. Uh, today sucking way way less. A four nothing win. A pair of homers, JD and Pete going yard. We're starting to see a little bit of power, a little bit. Maybe not the greatest week in, in, in that the Mets have had, but you know, with the sweep in Chicago, which we will talk about at length, uh, it was nice to finish off the week with you know two out of three against. A Nationals team that, you know, as this Nationals team is kind of situated, it would have been disappointing to lose this series. They're without Soto. We missed Scherzer and and Strasburg in this series. So, uh, you know, facing Eric Fetty, Joe Ross, and Patrick Corbin, who is bad now, by the way. uh, Yeah. It would have been really, really a, a kick in the throat to lose two out of three today. So I know Taiwan... Walker didn't necessarily pitch as well as his line indicated. He was helped out by the defense, but that's the, that's why the defense is there, you know. But he was helped out by the defense. But even still, a nice all-around victory today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that Nationals team looks pretty bad. Like, yeah, not very. It didn't good. really dawn on me how big a mistake they really made when they let Rendon walk. But um, I mean, I'm sure that. They're thinking about that a little bit because that Corbin contract, especially that might be the worst, uh, like worst value contract right now. It's pretty bad. They have like five more years of this and he looks completely washed. Yeah, they're in year three of a six year deal with Patrick Corbin. He seems to have fallen off the cliff pretty much completely. Uh, I mean, if you ask a Nationals fan or you ask Mike Rizzo, their GM or, or, or anyone in that organization, you know, is it worth it? They probably say yes, because. I don't think they win the World Series in 2019 without Corbin because he was great in, uh, in relief in Game 7. He was the winning pitcher in Game 7 of the World Series. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it quote-unquote paid off for them in that respect. But, you know, that was year one of the deal. And he was okay last year. And this year he is just real not good. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of enjoyable. I'm going to be honest. It, I, you know, I'm not going to say I'm reveling in it, but there was always something about Patrick Corbin that always kind of irked me. And then we, we obviously know his, his politics are, are not great. Uh, if you are in the same kind of mindset politically as Jack and I, so, um, but that aside, he's a national and it's kind of fun when your division rivals start to stink and, you know, the Nationals have given us so much trouble over the years, um, you know, because they've been pretty good consistently for, you know, a decade now. So watching them put together like a 77-win team is enjoyable. It's Maybe legitimate. not even that. It's, I mean, I, I know that, like, it's easy from our perch as Met fans to talk about how bad the teams that aren't as good as the Mets really are. But, like, they really sold their soul to win that uh that that world series and at this point now it's like you know once soto's gone i don't really know where they're going and offensively without soto and now potentially without trey turner who left the game with an injury 
after getting hit uh, in the elbow by a pitch. Like, who else is really in that lineup that has any chance of sustaining their numbers over a full season? Like, Yadiel Hernandez looks kind of good. Um, that's pretty much it. Jan Gomes offensively isn't a threat anymore. Uh, Andrew Stevenson's Andrew Stevenson. Victor Robles isn't a great hitter. Um, who am I forget? Josh Harrison is not a full-time player anymore. Starlin Castro is like, you know, he's he's not a starter on a team that finishes above 500. I don't think it's yeah, it's a and, pretty bad group. And their two big offensive acquisitions. Kyle Schwarber and, and Josh Bell, they don't look particularly good either. I mean, I think Schwarber's fine. He, he had a good day today defensively. He, you know, yeah. made a slide and catch through a runner out at home on a sack fly attempt. Um, and he almost put a dent in the scoreboard. Uh, Albert Almora, thank you for that amazing catch in center field. That was great. We'll talk about the defense today. Yeah. Uh, talk about the defense in general. Bad defense in Chicago, good defense today. Uh, but yeah, it's just not a good lineup without without Soto. It's a real bad lineup, and especially like they were they were talking about this on the broadcast yesterday during the Stroman start. Uh, how I, I believe it was Kevin Long was talking to you know SNY about this and, and said, without Juan Soto, we can get by, but without Trey Turner, we're fucked. More or less is what he said. He didn't use that exact phraseology, uh, but. Like he didn't say that specifically, but he meant that's what he meant is that without Trey Turner, they are screwed. Uh, if Trey Turner ever goes down and here we have Trey Turner leaving the game after getting hit by pitch uh, in the, the hand wrist area uh, by Taiwan Walker in the, in the sixth inning or the seventh inning, whatever it was. So that's a concern for the nationals. If he's out long-term because Soto's out for at least another couple weeks if they're without their two, their only two real good offensive players, this is a this is a lineup that is not going to put many runs up on the board. And you know I, they did get shut out twice this weekend with Trey Turner in the lineup. And I get that one of those starts they ran into the buzzsaw of Jacob Degrom, but you know you get shut out two times in in three games is you know it's not a great indicator of offensive talent on a roster. And then you add in the fact that. Yes, Max Scherzer is still pretty good. Uh, the rest of their starting staff has been extremely mediocre, yeah. especially Corbin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really no help on the way. Like Strasburg, you, it really looks like he's starting to see the effects of all those innings uh, that you know that he took on in the in the 2019 playoffs and all that stuff. It seems like he's coming up with a new injury every time he pitches. So uh, it's like Scherzer and who else on this Nats roster right now? I remember reading uh, somewhere about the potential, like the possibility that the Nationals end up trading Scherzer at the deadline if, they're, if their year really gets that out of hand. Made me think a lot about when the Tigers um, parted with Justin Verlander, the kind of effect that had on the Astros having acquired. Very interesting, but would definitely spell a last place finish, almost guarantee a last place finish. Because the Marlins are, I think, still not a great team, but I think they're it's the competition within that division uh, is a little bit more to the Marlins than it used to be, but I'm not, I I don't know. I mean, we've been in first place for quite a few days now. It's, 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 it's a nice thing to, you know, it's a nice view, I guess it's. 
They've been playing. The other thing about this too is that they've gotten, I think this is now their sixth day in a row of playing baseball. Like the Mets are finally getting a consistent schedule under their feet. And, uh, you know, there's some aspects of the team that are still going to need some, some, some work. They'll probably need to reboot in a few, you know, little areas. I do wonder how long Chili Davis is going to last this season because that whole ground ball rate stuff is like, it's a big part of why this team is struggling. The situational hitting has been atrocious. Um, there's a lot that I think will still need to be revised and how much of that actually happens under Luis Rojas is definitely up for debate. Um, but it's feel a lot better. I think this week now than I did in the middle of the week, because that was a pretty sorry effort in Chicago compared to this. Yeah. That series in Chicago, it, it sucked. Um, and we're starting to see kind of signs of life from this team, I think. And, and you're right about the, the playing, you know, consistently they played six days in a row now, uh, kind of the worst time really for an off day tomorrow for one of these kind of weird short and interleague series that kind of has a, that it's usually bookended by, off days like they get the Red Sox on Tuesday Wednesday and they don't play Monday or Thursday so uh, kind of a bad time for an off day but uh you know kind of you want to carry those vibes over especially it's a it's a home series they're home against the Red Sox like why is there even a need for for an off day but uh regardless yeah the middle of the week it sucked those three games in Chicago each one of them sucked in their own in their own regard mm-hmm. uh especially that middle game where they got absolutely demolished, you know, 16 runs against a team that coming into this series had been probably, you know, at the bottom three offense in the national league was averaging about three runs per game. You give up 16 runs really only, you know, 14 of those really against actual pitchers. Cause two were off Luis Guillorme and only five of those runs were earned. It, it's it, it was rough, man. And then they, you know, they didn't score at all on uh, on Tuesday against Jay Garrietta. They get blown out on Wednesday. They get walked off on Thursday. It was just, it was a rough series. It was a really rough series. It didn't seem like they could get anything going on either side of the ball. You know, even the, the pitching wasn't particularly great. Uh, you know, Taiwan Walker broke down big time in his start on on Tuesday in the middle innings where he walked like four batters in a row. Um, it just it was a very concerning series i think and whether it was a legit concern you know they they've quelled some of those fears with this national series cuz they did come back a lot stronger in the national series but th- it was a really ugly series in chicago man well the losses are still they still look like the kinds of games that you'd see them lose last year or the year before and i think that that's really what the root of the issue is like they went three for 20 in that Chicago series with runners in scoring position. Um, I understand that Dom Smith hit a bullet and that double play was, you know, more or less like wrong place, wrong time. But to even have yourselves in a situation where you loaded the bases with none out against Dan Winkler, Dan Winkler, and you can't score. Um, I mean, I, I like, the rally that fell short against Craig Kimbrell on Tuesday, they absolutely could have, finish that off. I think they decided at some point in the middle of that inning with a pitcher who wasn't throwing strikes with either his fastball or his secondary pitches um, to start swinging at secondary pitches and just let him back in the door. Uh, the JD Davis at bat there was especially a throwaway 
And, you know, credit to JD because he's hit very well to this point. He went three for four today. Um, the defense is not great. And if you're, you know, if you're not really going to be a guy that can be trusted at third base, you can't blow scoring opportunities when you're at the plate really ever because of how important that position is. Um, and it creates a, it, it creates a conflict really because the offense is for the most part, pretty starved. I mean, it's coming back to life a little bit, but JD's one of the guys who, one of the few guys who's really consistently hitting right now, but he made three errors in two games. Um, and you're seeing what happens when more than one thing goes wrong. If the defense isn't going right across a few cylinders and then the pitching will struggle because I think it was five of, yeah. So it was five of the 16 runs that were scored on Wednesday were unearned. Um, and then if you, so at that point, we're back at 11 earned runs, two of them were off Luis Guillorme. So we're at nine earned runs and then four came off Trevor Hildenberger, um, who's since been optioned, unfortunately, and hopefully he'll be back soon. But, you know, this was, you know, ultimately this was like five runs that scored that should have scored and the Mets scoring four runs on their end. This should have been a closer game, um, just a lot of, I think, frustrating elements. And then, of course, the loss on Thursday that they capped it off because the bullpen becomes a martyr at that point because they're the ones blowing the the prospect of winning by giving up a run when really, like, you know, why aren't they punishing Zach Davies? And this happened Saturday, too, against Joe Ross, you know? And, again, they swept this – they didn't sweep, but they took the series 2-1, to one, uh, which is better than losing 2-1. to one. But the Saturday game against Joe Ross was a, a clunker. The, the fact that they couldn't put together more than one run against him when he was looking for the exit. James McCann had some pretty bad at-bats. And um, you know, obviously, Stroman didn't really have it. But you can't – this team still, I think, is at a position where if more than one thing goes wrong, the games become very difficult to watch very easily. And that's something that you know you want to see corrected in a first-place team. Yeah, the losses are sloppy. They're, they're sloppy. All three in Chicago were sloppy to an extent. And the middle game against the Nationals was sloppy uh, all around in, in a lot of different respects. The defense in Chicago was bad all around. The pitching, the I mean, there was a lack of command. I mean, you talk about Taiwan Walker specifically. Joey LaCasey kind of lost the strike zone for a little bit in game three. Like, you know it wasn't the finest pitching series, even though two of the games they gave up four runs or fewer. Mm -hmm. uh, it just wasn't a super tightly pitched series, even though this team has been pitching extremely well so far through most of the season. And then in terms of the pitching against the nationals in game two, Marcus Stroman did not look good. I kind of knew, I, I said something in this group chat, Jack and I are in and like six pitches. in, I was like, I know it's only six pitches, but, he doesn't particularly look very sharp today and he never really found it. His slider kind of wasn't all that great. It was kind of up. His sinker was riding inside to right handers a lot. He was not really able to command anything. Uh, and it wasn't really coming in the forms of walks. It was just kind of, he was giving up these little dinky hits. He gave up like eight singles that mm. were, you know, it, there he was pitching a little bit to bad luck, but he also wasn't, he didn't have the crispness, in his stuff in his location that he has had through his, you know, previous three starts. So yeah, it just kind of messy. 
And then the offense not hitting with runners in scoring position at all in any of the losses. And that's kind of the common thread here is that this team is nine and eight. But if this team hit with runners in scoring position 15% better than they have so far this year, you might be looking at instead of a nine and eight record at, at the very least, like an 11 and six record. Like, Probably. because they've lost a couple of close games in that, you know, they could have won that game in Chicago. They had enough base runners in Chicago in the first game where they could have won that game five to three. Yeah. And yeah. even today, even today, this, it was a four, nothing win. They probably could have won this game, eight, nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you know, you take the wins as they come. It's, it, it's all the same, I think, in the, you know, in the, in the standings, right? But it, it also becomes a little bit frustrating when you're still waiting on other players, like 17 games into the season, to really turn it on because these are prime opportunities to do it. And I think one example of a player who has taken advantage of it and has, I think, come into his own a little bit is Pete Alonso because he's been hitting really well hit a few very hard balls off of, off of Corbin. Obviously the home run today was a a moonshot. Um, Conforto's looked a lot better too. He's been making great contact, but you know, it's a, it's a lineup of eight hitters. And right now you have Conforto and Alonzo hitting kind of well. Nimmo is contributing the way he always does when he's not hitting, he's still getting on base, but then the, the, the rest of that, lineup is kind of a question I mean Jeff McNeil was as much of a non-factor in this series as I think I've really like more so than I've ever seen him uh he only played in five innings I do wonder maybe if like he's playing through injury or something because I we we've been down this road before this happened a little bit last year and then he managed to turn it around but and it's not just McNeil it's Dom Smith hasn't really uh, he didn't really have a great series and played all today. Francisco Lindor is probably the one that people are talking about the most because he is the face of this new team and he's making the most money. Uh, it's been a pretty rough go for him so far, and I'm sure he's going to figure it out and turn it on. It's it's really just for me, at least a matter of what that looks like now, because um, there are a lot of games that probably don't get away if, even one of those three guys is is producing at half the clip that they usually would. Um, yeah, Lindor connected for his his first home run on a, on Wednesday against Kyle Davies or Zach Davies. My bad. Uh, who? Guy. Yeah, Kyle Davies is a guy we remember sometimes. But Zach Davies <laughs> pitching on Wednesday for the Cubs. He he connected. He you know left handed hit the home run, got the scoring early in that game going which was like, ah, heck yeah, man, let's go. Maybe we could turn this into something. Obviously a 16-4 to loss. We didn't do that. But, uh, you know, there was kind of hope for me at least that, okay, he he barreled something up here. He put one out of the ballpark. Let's keep that momentum going. He's going to find it now. And he hasn't really parlayed that into, uh, like, any kind of success. I mean, he's had he had some singles in the series against the Nationals. He had a base hit today. He had a base hit yesterday. So, like, I, I mean, he's getting a single here or there. He's going one for three, one for four. He's still not hitting the ball particularly hard. And it still really does look like he's getting his footing underneath him. It hasn't followed him out in the field that much. I know he had kind of a misplay in Chicago that he was he was beating himself up for, but this series against the Nationals, he played spectacular defense at shortstop. 
made a really nice play on a line drive today off Jan Gomes bat. Uh, the, there was a double play that he, he, he helped turn uh, earlier this weekend. So he's not letting it follow him into the field, at least as far as I see. Um, but I, I, I'm not concerned. I think that if we get to mid May or late May and he's still hitting 210, then, you know, and with like limited power, then maybe I'm concerned, but I'm not concerned yet because first of all, you look at his career numbers, April is, is generally been a slow month for him. And he's with a new team in a new city with a new contract that comes with a lot, with a lot of expectations. And the team wasn't on the field much, you know, it's hard to get your feet underneath you in baseball when you're barely playing. We saw him play well this spring. We saw him hit well this spring. We saw him barrel some balls this spring, hit some home runs this spring. So I'm not concerned once he gets, you know, consistent level of playing time and maybe, you know, the two off days this week won't help that, but you know, once he, he starts getting used to, you know, being a New York Met every day, I'm not concerned about Francisco Lindor. I think we're going to be looking back, you know, at the all-star break, like laughing at ourselves for, for being concerned on April 26th. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about it too, with the spring training numbers and the spring training performance that you mentioned, it's like most of that came at the back half of the spring. He was not necessarily putting it together the first few weeks, uh, I mean, again, you know, these are small samples. The competition is obviously different, but he did come into his own with time. And he's not, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of overreaction and I get it. Like we're a fan base that has seen this happen again and again, um, you know, where generational players come here and they stop performing or producing. But most of the time, I think it's, it isn't, I think, there are usually, I think, indicators of some kind, and you can pin this to some extent on management for not having the foresight, but I don't really see that with, with Lindor. Like, he's not going to be in the eighth percentile in barrel percentage the whole year because um, he never has been. There's, ne there's no trend that suggests that he's getting worse at squaring up the baseball. The defense is just as good as it's always been, um, and for us, that's a huge thing because, it, you know, it bails out pitchers. Uh, I think it'll be fine. It, it's, it is one of those things though, where you get restless because you're already seeing other teams pitching badly, fielding badly, putting themselves in positions to get massacred by this lineup. And the Mets just aren't really pulling the trigger yet. Um, hopefully that comes together soon. Again, guys are slowly starting to come to, but it's, uh, I do want to enjoy that soon that that barrage of runs because we'll need them we really do want to stack up games against teams like like the nationals and the rockies when we can it's not fun to lose those games yeah i i want to see a big offensive output at some point soon you know this this series against the red sox would be nice because you know i'm kind of i here's the thing about the red sox they are such pretenders it's not even funny they're they're leading the al east right now and it, it's like I'm just waiting for them to fall. I'm waiting for them to fall down. They've gotten off to such a hot start, both offensively and on the pitching side, which is ridiculous. I think their lineup is fine, but I don't think their pitching staff is very good. And they've been 
you know, playing really well on both sides of the ball. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Mets kind of, you know, come out here and expose them a little bit in these two games. I mean, they get, they get to Grom on Wednesday in the second game of this series. So, you know, yeah. good luck to you, my friend, because Jacob yeah. Grom is on a different planet right now. And I think this is a good point to segue into it, but one sure. last thing on the offense. Um, let's, let's hit some dingers. Let's, let's have some fun against this Boston pitching staff. Let's not get shut down by like Joe Ross and Eric Fetty, who who did, yeah, Garrett Richards is pitching. He's been awful. Like, uh, I forget who's pitching the other game for the Red Sox, but, uh, like, I mean, Eric Fetty put them, you know, held the Mets scoreless for five innings the other night, and Joe Ross, they couldn't touch Joe Ross for like six innings. They got one run off. Like, let's not do that again. Let's not elevate bad pitchers and let's not have a negative run differential anymore that's the yes. thing there are only two first place teams that have negative run differentials we're a negative 11 the kansas city royals are the other team and they're not a first place team and they're at negative one like you just gotta the, the pythagorean record isn't great right now you just gotta kick it in the ass a little yeah there's some pretenders across baseball right now all three like american league division leaders i think are, are all pretend well not the a's the uh the mariners i'm talking more the, the Mar- i think the a's are fine uh they just had their 13 game win streak snapped but uh like the mariners the royals and the red Sox are all like off to really strong starts in terms of record and i just don't see any of those teams sustaining it uh, as, as fun as the Mets of the West coast, those Mariners are, um, but yeah. Okay. We'll transition now. Cause we're going to talk Jacob DeGrom cause he is, oh my God, he's, he's on another planet. We talk about, we talked about him last week because he had that 14 strikeout performance in, in Colorado and we were like waxing poetic about, he still gave up three unearned runs and he'll tell you that it was a bad start. And then he goes and he throws a complete game shutout, 15 strikeout, two hitter against the nationals, which is he, he was unbelievable. He was unbelievable. Yeah. 15 strikeouts through seven innings too. Uh, that's the thing that is like really, I think his strikeouts per nine went down as a result of that start. He's at like 15.5 right now. Um, yeah. This bum, this bum got six at, straight outs in play to end the game. Yeah. He had a chance at uh, setting the record with 21 strikeouts in a game. And I was, I, I really did think he was going to do it. It, it. it seemed like perfect alignment for that to happen against that Nationals offense because they looked like, I mean, they looked like they wanted no part of him, like most teams have to this point. But yeah, I, there's the, the earned run average speaks for itself. It's a 0.31 right now. And I think the thing about DeGrom that is really, like charming and makes this whole thing so much more exciting is that he never really at no point um, in the last three years that he's been this kind of pitcher, he's never, so to speak, come back to earth, whatever good performance he's giving you, it stays that way. Um, doesn't matter if that's like an ERA in the low twos or an ERA in at like 180, like he had in 2018, like, it's it's a consistent trend. However well he's doing, it stays that way. He never has bad enough games that tell you, all right, well, now he's just back to normal. And this kind of performance right now, I, I actually think he could keep it up. Like every start, I feel like he could do this. He could go seven innings, strike out 12 or more. Um, more complete games would be cool because I think complete games are just 
so awesome. Maybe it's it's the like the the oldie and me talking, but, but just the fact that it never happens anymore, and the fact that Degrom finally got one because he hasn't had one in a while. It's it's I want more of it. Can't get enough. Yeah, first nine inning complete game for Degrom since 2015, I think. Uh, he had one in 2018, but okay. Um, regardless, yeah. I, I said last week when we were talking about him, I said it feels like we're watching, you know, 1968 Bob Gibson, who has the, you know, the modern ERA record. It's what it felt like. And it's what it still feels like. And and now we're moving kind of past the unearthly ridiculousness that we were talking about last week. Because this start, he he surpassed that this with this start against the Nationals. And now we're, we're hearing stories about how, not just players, but coaches on opposing teams are sitting in their clubhouse after games and debating if he's the best pitcher they've ever seen. Like they talked about this on the broadcast today that the Nationals coaching staff, that Davey Martinez and Kevin Long, they were talking about this after Friday, debating if DeGrom is the best pitcher they have ever seen in their baseball lives, like better than Pedro. Like they're talking about that. And it's unbelievable that the fact that the nationals, when Starlin Castro had a little single in the second inning, in the second inning that the nationals breathed a sigh of relief because they said, all right, we're not getting no hit today. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It is not, there is no way to beat this guy right now. You cannot touch him. he does not want to go out there and strike you out. He wants to go out there and make you look like a fool. Yeah. He wants to make you look like a little leaguer. Yeah. He, he has wants no to make you hate the sport. He has no interest in, in beating you. He, he doesn't care about beating you because he knows he's going to beat you. His interest is in humiliating you. Yeah. He wants to put your, he, he wants to put your diaper around your ankles. That's yeah, I like that. That's a good one. That's a good ad. But yeah, it's the other thing about it too, um, that I've kind of become more fascinated with is like he's a very stoic pitcher. Um, the phrase like act like you've been there before is something I hear a lot. He almost, and this isn't this is not me challenging how badly Jacob deGrom wants it, because it's it's there's no indicator like you can yell and scream all you want um you know that that doesn't always tell people how badly you want something but he really sometimes looks like he's not just acting like he's been there before like he almost looks like he's bored of 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 doing this so often like it is that routine um yeah i think reinventing like the emotion of it but in this really like subversive but intriguing way where you watch him and all the emotion in it is completely within you as a fan. Um, I think that a really, really good kind of analogy to another player is Albert Pujols. He is very much so the pitching version of Albert Pujols when Pujols was at the top of his game because Pujols just went up there imposing as hell, just like DeGrom, even though DeGrom is, you know, this six foot four twig and Pujols was this giant behemoth of a man. Uh, 
still DeGrom is as imposing as it gets on the mound. He stares you down. And Pujols would stand in the box and do his little squat thing. And he, sitting there in the box, he knew he was going to beat you. And DeGrom on the mound knew he was going to beat you. And they didn't, they didn't mess around. There was no joking around when they were doing their job. There was no smiling. There was no emotion. They just did their job as good as anyone, better than anyone on the planet when they were at the top of their game. And Pujols, when he beat you, he just tossed the bat aside and he tried it on the base pass and he didn't, he didn't celebrate. He just did his thing. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it almost looked like he was bored because he already knew he was going to beat you because he could tell when he stepped in the box against you, he knew that you were scared to face him. Like you think that Andrew Stevenson was, was, you know, having comfortable at bats against Jacob DeGrom on Friday. No chance. No chance. These guys knew that they were screwed. The second they stepped in the box, they're like, all right, let's get this over with. You know, the best you can do is hope to put a professional at bat together. Maybe you get ahead in the count and maybe you time up a fastball like Jazz Chisholm, but that is a, a, a the chance of that actually happening. By the way, that home run he allowed to Jazz Chisholm in his second start, still the only earned run he's given up this year. It, it ages like a fine wine, that home run. I wonder if like every time Jazz Chisholm and his teammates – watch the starts that DeGrom has they they enjoy and savor that he did that a little bit more because it's still like because I remember watching that I I do wonder like how far this is going to go in terms of like this being the only run because it's what's the streak now in terms of scoreless innings I'm, I'm going to look that up well he in terms of scoreless innings it's not all that long because he gave up three in Colorado uh they were just oh. earned runs so I mean, he's got he's working at nine, maybe at ten or eleven innings right now in terms okay. of scoreless. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of not allowing earned runs, he hasn't allowed an earned run since that loss against the Marlins, where Chisholm took him deep. Like Jazz Chisholm, first of all, Jazz Chisholm is very, very fun. I love Jazz Chisholm. I think he's an incredible person uh, and that. seems like a very, very fun person and an impossible ambassador for the Marlins and for baseball moving forward. I know it wasn't necessarily a milestone home run. It wasn't his first in the big leagues. It was like a second inning home run, you know, in a game that they won like three to nothing. And yet if he has that baseball, he should put that baseball in a box in a glass case and put it on his mantle. Because the fact that he was able to, first of all, turn on a fastball from DeGrom in an O2 count, like ridiculous. And it, it may, in fact, be the only run that DeGrom allows in the month of April yeah. in 2021. Like, it's insane. <laughs> like, right on that right on that ball in Sharpie, be like, homer it off DeGrom and give it to your mom and dad, put it on the, the trophy case. Yeah. Because it's unbelievable what this guy is doing. Where you were when Jazz Chisholm hit the home run. Like I was, I was in my kitchen watching the baseball game on my laptop. I remember because I threw like an inning and a half. I was like, oh my God, he looks amazing. He may throw the no, because I still feel like he's going to get one one day. Yeah. Every uh, start I do that too. And it's, it's crazy that the Nationals coaching staff is even thinking about that, that other teams are thinking that while we're thinking it. It's fun. It's really great. Um, God, yeah. And then there's the whole like infographic that they did today about Dwight Gooden having like the best pitch season in Met history and like, you know, what Jacob DeGrom is going to need to do to get there. I mean, he's already a better pitcher franchise-wise than Gooden was, I think. Um, 
because they've been doing this around the same length of time and DeGrom's been doing it a little bit better. Um, but it's, it's very possible if he does this for like two or three more years that he's going to be the best pitcher the Mets have ever had, the best player at that point that the Mets have ever had. He now he now has a lower career earned run average than Tom Seaver. Uh, with the complete game shutout, he finally got below Seaver's mark of 2.57. They went into that start tied at 2.57, and obviously, you throw nine scoreless innings onto your ledger, you're going to get a little bit lower. So, you know, I don't think that Jack and I are going to complain if we have to step into the the podcast every week and spend 10 minutes talking about how amazing Jacob DeGrom is, and we hope that this continues. Yeah. But, you know, it's, oh, ho-hum, what do you do this week? 15Ks, career high? Of course he did. Complete game shutout? Of course. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe this will be the – maybe him facing the Red Sox on Wednesday will be what sets the Red Sox back down to earth. Kind of like, kind of like what happened to Michael Conforto when he started against Madison Bumgarner in 2016, how it kind of screwed him for, like, the rest of the year. Yeah, that was I do remember that. That's a good uh God. What happened to Madison Bumgarner anyway? He's just you imagine now like a pitcher getting embarrassed by or a hitter getting embarrassed by Madison Bumgarner. It like it won't happen. He's totally washed. Him and him and Corbin are kind of on a similar downward trajectory. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And Strasburg now too. It's hard. Yeah, Strasburg just can't stay healthy though. Times are changing. Um Speaking of guys, other who, pitchers though. Yeah. Speaking of guys who are on yeah. the same wavelength, we're on the same wavelength with that transition. Speaking of guys and, and pitchers and health and all that stuff, we got some guys on the mend. We got some good news on Carlos Carrasco, Seth Lugo, Noah Syndergaard, and Drew Smith. Starting with uh, Drew Smith, our favorite underused reliever. Uh, he faced live guys in a in a. Uh, he's he's facing live hitters. It, it looks like he might actually be back any day now. Uh, just a matter of of how he's feeling and comfort with facing batters, but he is exactly where he needs to be to be activated off the IL, and hopefully will happen within the next week or so. Carlos Carrasco is on track to come back to the Mets in the second week or so of May. He has been up to five innings uh, and facing batters, so he is right on track, um, barring a setback, knock on wood. Uh, Seth Lugo has not yet faced batters, but he has thrown two bullpens down in Florida and is on track to come back right around when the original report said, uh, which was around mid to late May. And Noah Syndergaard in his trek back from Tommy John surgery faced live hitters for the first time down in Florida this week. He threw an inning against hitters down in Port St. Lucie. He hit 97 miles an hour. And again, like Lugo is on track to hit his uh, initial return date, which is, you know, sometime in June. So, Really good news on all four fronts. Yeah. When they're giving you news, that's that's usually how you know. Because meanwhile, Dylan Batances, I mean, it's he's probably not going to pitch another game as a Met. They don't have any timetable for the shoulder impingement. Um, he doesn't seem to be doing anything right now. Like they and this quietly is, they quietly scuttled him off to the 60-day IL. Yeah, uh, earlier this weekend, which no went, corresponding move either. Like, yeah, just, which was very sus. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I hope he figures it out somewhere. It just doesn't seem like it's going to happen here. But in terms of pitchers who will figure it out or who have it figured out, like, I really do 
uh, I'm really anticipating good stuff when Carrasco comes back. And just not only the fact that Carlos Carrasco is going to be pitching games in a Met uniform, but like that back part of the Met rotation that's been sort of like cosplaying in the middle right now will have a little bit taken off their shoulders. Cause like Tywan Walker is throwing a lot of innings. Um, that probably isn't sustainable. You want him to stay healthy. You don't want to put him in positions where he has to go seven innings every time. Um, however good he looks now, he's done 53 innings in the past two years. Like you have to play it conservatively. Um, maybe Carrasco coming back means you daisy chain Walker and Peterson together, or maybe Walker and uh, Lucchese, or maybe Lucchese, well, I guess Walker can't go anywhere in those situations. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't do Lucchese Peterson, but um, just being able to, I think, like treat those guys as depth again is going to be a benefit for the Mets. That you know, the other side of this coin is that the pitching staff hasn't really had any problems at all. That last point in the bullpen is sort of becoming hairy. Like Drew Smith coming in, hopefully he he can do a little bit better than like Stephen Tarpley did on Saturday, because um, that was pretty bad. I mean, the depth there, it's like that last that last point. I mean, Sean Reed Foley looked really good. Um, yeah, you brought up the uh, the kind of the idea of a potential opener situation when guys start yeah. getting healthy. I think we have a potential opener situation in front of us right now. With If Sean Reed Foley is like good, question mark, and can provide length, I feel like using him and Lucchese as kind of a piggyback opener situation – could be really beneficial because Lucchese hasn't made it out of three innings yet in any of his, in his starts. And Reed Foley is clearly capable of going three innings. So why not do kind of a Lucchese once or twice through the order and then go to Reed Foley once or twice through the order if you can and see how that goes. Because honestly, I could see that working here. I could, they're very different kind of looks and I was impressed as hell by Sean Reed Foley way better than I thought he'd look. And better than he ever did in the spring too. Like he was actually locating his stuff, which was the big thing. They said, they said on the broadcast that, you know, what he's crediting to that is that because he's always had really poor command, but what he's crediting to is his good outing there. The three inning, no hit outing in game three in Chicago was he's not trying to throw strikes anymore. He's not trying to be pinpoint. He's just trying to let his stuff move and let his stuff go and try to hit his spots obviously but he's not stressing about putting a ball right on the corner or hitting exactly the glove as long as he gets it in you know where right around where he needs to he thinks his stuff is good enough to compete and it certainly seems like it and he certainly you know he was a former starter he's a reliever full-time now pretty much looks like he's got the mentality with the squatting thing he was doing and there's energy there. There's a lot of energy there. And he's got like a little mustache situation going on. Like he seems fun. And I kind of, I kind of hope that he sticks because first of all, he could be a weapon in this bullpen if he's good like that and can provide length, Mm -hmm. but he also seems kind of like fun to watch. Well, he's crazy. There are stories about him, like in Toronto. And you can see in some of his games, like he was a big, like, like grizzly bear on the mound when it comes to like how he carries himself in between innings, how he comes off the mound, like things like that don't always speak to performance, but with pitchers and just the experience of watching pitchers, 
it's so much more fun. Um, especially when they have, I think like the profile that Reef Foley has with the fastball, like the way it moves, it's just, it's, it is a lot of fun to watch. Hopefully, I don't think he's going to have games like that very often in Chicago. Like that was a very solid showing, but he hasn't really done that a lot. And there's a reason Toronto gave up on him, but there's, you know, there's definitely more hope with him right now than I'd say with Jacob Barnes. Um, oh yeah. And you do have like, the flexibility to move people around still. Um, I mean, yeah, hopefully they can find a way to work this out while being able to bring Hildy back. Cause that was really unfair what they did to him. Uh, yeah. On, we on, we uh, feel bad for our friend. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we have some, <laughs> we were just talking to Drew Smith. I just happened to look down on my phone. The Mets have activated Drew Smith off the injured list and they have sent yeah. him to the alternate site. Yeah. That, so, that, that makes sense. They're probably, I guess they, they always do this with him where they want any excuse possible to not promote him or, or recall him or give him a shot, but you know, we love it forever. So yeah, we love it when news breaks during the podcast folks, don't we? Uh, Yeah. So I think that he probably won't be at the alternate site for very long. I think that, you know, Robert Gazelman has an option. Tarpley obviously looked very bad in his first outing. Couldn't find strike zone also was getting squeezed a little bit, but you know, it didn't get an out. Uh, probably the next guy who with an option who who either has a bad outing or or has a, a long outing kind of because that's why Hildenberger got sent down uh because yeah. they stretched him out for like 44 pitches which means he just wasn't going to be available for like two or three days uh so why keep him up when you have an option and you can some bring up a fresh arm which is what they did with Tarpley uh so who you know that'll probably wind up happening Smith will probably be the next man up yeah. um which is good because he's also a guy who is talented enough to to stick and yeah. and provide some mid leverage or even high leverage outs, uh, you know, before Seth Lugo comes back and kind of takes that fourth high leverage spot in the Mets bullpen. Cause you got, you got Castro may and Diaz right now as the three main high leverage guys. And then I guess like loop has been getting some high leverage spots against lefties. Um, well, if Amelia keeps it up, he might actually earn uh, earn a shot. I mean, he's been doing very well in the role they've had him in, and you don't really want to, like, mess with that a lot. And we know from experience watching Jerry Scamilia that, like, you know, high leverage Jerry Scamilia is uh, a, a pretty bad trip, but um, he's he has also looked pretty good. I give him credit for that. Like, really nobody in that bullpen, aside from Jacob Barnes, has had games where it's like, where you question why they're there. Um, and that's the pitching staff has given us everything that we could have yeah. asked for. I think that's why it's frustrating that the offense isn't, you know, sealing the envelope really right now. Yeah. Even Barnes has had outings where he's looked fine. Yeah. And Hefner seems to really like working with him. And that's obviously going to, you know, that, that bodes well for him and his time here, how many chances he gets. Um, we're starting- he's another guy that, yeah, we're. St- I'm, I was just gonna say we're starting to kind of see the the fruits of the Mets' labor from the off season and bringing in more pitching depth. Both like we haven't even seen Jordan Yamamoto yet. I assume he'll get a start at some point in the relatively near future. Hopefully, not as a result of an injury. Uh, but you know they sent down Joey Lucchese, so like he might he might get that next turn through the rotation when it's Lucchese's turn. Although with the off days this week, they probably don't need to use that fifth guy in the rotation. So who knows, but uh, regardless, yeah, we're starting to see kind of the, the fruits, of the labor of bringing in the, the depth because the bullpen has been 
pretty decent the last week and a half or so. And we still got, we haven't seen Drew Smith. We haven't seen Seth Lugo. We haven't, you know, seen like Trevor Hildenberg is now with the raw on, on the major league roster anymore. Like we still haven't seen a bunch of the guys very much who we yeah. think are going to be role players in this bullpen uh, moving forward. Like it's not like an embarrassment of riches, but you know, there's, there's like, it's been good. And yet there's still help on the way, which is a really good feeling. A lot better than last year or two years ago for that matter. The help that is on the way is I think pretty encouraging. So yeah, good stuff. So shall we remember some guys? We shall, we shall. I'll go first. Um, I'm remembering and thanking uh, Fernando Tatis, the elder, who we have not yet remembered. Um, he is a gift that keeps giving because his son is ridiculously good at hitting the baseball. And he did some stuff last night that hopefully more players, I think, get the memo on and begin doing, which is bullying Trevor Bauer um, mercilessly. I thought that, and he did some more of it today online. Like it's, it's, it's just nice to see um, as far as Tatis the elder, because I realized that this is a Met centered podcast and I'm remembering a Met. Um, he was pretty fun with, with New York. He kind of did any job they asked him to, uh, whether that was coming off the bench, playing left field, playing right field, playing first base. I think they made him play third a little when David Wright was out. He had games where he'd hit cleanup on like the 09 team and maybe even in 2010. Like he was just a fun dude. He was sort of on the last legs of his career, but really uh, made it stick, which was encouraging. He so had some clutch hits. Him and thanking him. He had some clutch hits. And yes, thank you for having sex 22 years ago or so, because we baseball fans are, we're very happy with, with your, with your son. Cause he's so good. He's so good, man. He's so fun. I was watching that game last night and I couldn't believe it when he did the thing with, with the first home run, first of all, covering his eye to make fun of Bauer. And then when I saw him hit the second home run and cross home plate, doing the little McGregor thing that the little trot that, that Bauer does. And yeah. then the tweet today when he posted that Photoshop of him holding a baby and put Trevor Bauer's face over the baby and, put, and tweeted at Bauer. It's so electric, man. I, I just can't get enough of the kid. I can't, I can't wait for tonight's game that those Dodgers Padres series are like, they're like pay-per-view boxing. It's just like, yeah, it's awesome. Screw the Oscars. I want to watch Dodgers Padres. Uh, there's, there's Oscars tonight. Yeah. The Oscars are on tonight too. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I won't be watching that. I'll be watching Dodgers Padres. Um, I'm going to remember someone who I kind of had a similar offensive profile to Fernando Tatis senior, but very, very, t- I, I don't know how to explain this guy. I'm just going to say who it is and then we'll talk about him. I'm remembering Mike Hessman. Oh man, Crash Davis. Yeah. Mike wow. Hessman, Mike Hessman got into 32 games with the 2010 Mets. He went 7 for 55. That's a 127 batting average. Hit one home run. Uh career he had he spent uh part-time in 5 years in Major League Baseball. The other two teams he got in with were the Braves and the uh the Tigers in 03, 04, 07 and 08. Um and he hit 14 home runs across those 5 years in about 250 plate appearances. However, the thing about Mike Hessman 
is not his major league exploits. It's his minor league exploits. Yeah. In he's he was a career minor leaguer. He's 19 years, you know, over 2,000 minor league games. He had 433 minor league home runs, which I believe is the record. It is the record. It's it's hard to do, but I think that's where the Crash Davis thing came from was the fact that he did that. And then and he was like 37. Like the Mets were in the World Series the same year he did this. It's not that long ago that that Mike Hessman was like a story. Yes, in 2015, he played in 114 games in Toledo in AAA for the Tigers, and he hit 16 homers. So, like this, that was his last professional year as a 37 year old. He was 32 when he was with the Mets. He was a first baseman type. He didn't really play the field much for the Mets. He more so pinch hit a bunch. I think his one home run. I could be wrong about this. His one home run for the Mets, I want to say, came off Cole Hamels. But it was definitely against the Phillies. I know that much. But you might be thinking of another like stocky right-handed hitting guy who I'm not gonna mention because he's a he's too good to just give away in remembering right now. I think I know who you're that guy definitely parked one off Cole Hamels. I'm looking at the Hessman game logs now though. I'm, um, I'm looking too because you might have also done Hamels though. All right, let me look. His home run came against the Phillies on August 6th of 2010. And now I got to pull up the game, the, uh, the game page. Um, the Mets lost the game seven to five. They gave up six runs in the bottom of the eighth inning and then scored three in the top of the ninth and lost anyways. And Hessman's home run. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't off Cole Hamels, but you were right that it was off the Phillies. It was against JC Romero in the ninth inning. It was a two run. Sh- it was a three run shot. Uh, but interesting fella, Mike Hessman. You know, I'd love to. I'd love to get a beer with Mike Hessman and chat about his career because the stories I'm sure he has. Yeah. I'm sure he's got plenty of stories. Yeah, a lot of good ones. I wonder what he thought of playing in Las Vegas if he ever did. You don't play 19 years of minor league ball and not not have stories from every city from every bus trip that you took well he was in the org when jacob Degrom was in the org i wonder if they ever met yeah wait was he because it was 2010 Degrom wasn't wasn't Degrom drafted in 2011 i thought he was drafted in 2010 maybe i don't i i probably never crossed paths Deb, yeah i mean it, it's a fun thing to think about but yeah yeah Degrom was in omar draft right right okay maybe you're right um, well, okay. So he was only with the Mets in 2010 because then he went off to Japan in 2011 mm-hmm. and then he came back into the, he was with AAA for the Astros in 2012 and then the Reds in 2013. So he only spent the one year with the Mets in the Mets organization. So I don't, I, you know, probably, probably didn't cross paths, but who knows? Perhaps maybe they've crossed mm-hmm. paths elsewhere, yeah. but in the meantime, I think that's a good place to pay, put a pin in it. Another pleasant good evening masterclass on this Sunday afternoon. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, for Jack Hennon, anything anything else to add, Jack, before I do the outro? Um, please pray for me. I have an econ midterm this coming Friday that I'm wildly unprepared for and very scared about. And if my activity on Twitter has been limited, if our activity on Twitter, for that matter, has been limited, it's because I've been freaking out about it, trying to study um, I didn't do too well on the last one. I could really use some prayers. Uh, whatever you can give me, whatever energy you can send me for this week, I would really appreciate. Um, but nothing, nothing important. 
<laughs> we will keep you in, in our thoughts, Jack. Uh, yeah, semester's got like three weeks left for me too. So uh, after that point, you know, summertime and, and time for more posting on Twitter at the, P, at the PGE pod. If you guys don't follow us already, you should because whenever we can, we try to, we try to get some good content out there. Um, but yeah, for Jack Hendon, my name is Sam Lovitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant day. Oh, 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 oh,